Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. We are continuing in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. This will be page 913 if you're using the Bibles here at the church. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. We'll be looking at verse 12 all the way through the end of the chapter. All right, well, before we go ahead and read that, let's begin with prayer. Oh, Lord, we pray that you teach your people this morning as we open your word. Guide our minds by your spirit to understand more about you and how you call us to live. May we be captivated by Jesus as your apostles were. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in the name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. 
But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Amen. God's word. Among the heroes of World War II that not many people know of is a man named Helmuth James von Moltke. Von Moltke was a strong Christian who opposed Hitler and the Nazi party prior to the war, but once the war started was drafted into the intelligence branch of the German army. So there he set about using his position to save as many people as he could. Uh, for instance, at one point, he helped to notify Denmark that Germany was about to round up all the Jews in their country, and so they were able to evacuate many of the Jews uh, to Sweden. Towards the end of the war, von Moltke was arrested and executed for treason. But the letters that he wrote to his wife reveal a man who was captivated by Christ. He wrote, in one of his tirades, the Nazi judge, Freisler, said to me, Only in one respect are we and Christianity alike. We demand the whole man. He continues, Of the whole gang, Freisler was the only one who recognized me. And of the whole gang, he is the only one who knows why he has to kill me. We talked. As if in a vacuum, this was grim earnest. From whom do you take orders? From God or from Adolf Hitler? As he writes his final letter to his wife, von Moltke rejoices to describe all the ways that God has been at work throughout his trial so that it was clearly stated before the end. He was being executed because he was a Christian. This man is an example to us of what it looks like to be captivated by Christ, which is what we see as well in this portion of Acts. The apostles show us what it looks like to be captivated by Christ. It leads to freedom and joy, even in the midst of persecution and difficulty. But before we look at the apostles, we have to look at the other people in this story because they show us what it looks like to not be 
captivated by Christ. And so we begin with our first point, not captivated, not captivated. This text begins in verses 12 to 16 with a summary of what's, what's going on in the city. Uh, the apostles are performing all these wonders and signs, and the Christians are all gathered together in Solomon's portico. Uh, now, just to give you a visual here, Sarah has a picture of the temple complex for us, and you can see here, right in the middle, that's the main temple building there, uh, the tall structure, but then there's this uh, it looks like a wall here, but it's actually a big, a giant porch that surrounds the temple structure. Uh, it's two columns deep on three sides, and then this taller section would be, uh, I think it was four columns deep. Um, so this, this giant porch gave a place for people to gather. Uh, there would be scribes that would, you know, have discussions and teach underneath these porches. People would be out of the sun and out of the rain. Uh, there would be shops under there. And the, the, the porch on the far side where that number nine is, if you can see that, that was Solomon's portico. And so it seems that in the beginning of the book of Acts, this sort of became like a gathering spot for the Christians. They would sort of always meet up here on that far side underneath that porch. Um, now, to give you more of a feel of the scale of this porch, Sarah, if you want to show them the next picture, here's a, a colonnade, a Roman colonnade, that looks similar to what Solomon's portico may have looked like. You can see how large the columns are. And then if you can show us the next one, Sarah, here's sort of an artist, uh, it's not super bright, but here's sort of an artist's reconstruction of what um, Solomon's portico might have been like for people to kind of gather underneath it. And you can see these are very large gathering places for large amounts of people. Uh, now, we're told in verses 13 and 14 that there was sort of a division between the Christians and the rest of the population. The Christians were meeting, you know, under Solomon's portico. The rest of the Christians, were, the rest of the people in the city were sort of keeping their distance from them. There were many new believers joining. We see that in verse 14. But all the rest, although they held the Christians in high esteem, they didn't dare, the text says, they didn't dare to join them. They liked these people. They're doing good things for the community. Uh, they take their sick people to them, but they aren't ready to join them. They're not captivated by Christ. They might be captivated by what they think Christ can do for them, but they're not captivated by him. And so they don't dare join his people. And the text doesn't tell us why they were nervous exactly, but, you know, maybe uh, we saw last week, maybe this whole event with Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead was a little scary for some people. Uh, you know, Christianity as a, as a contributor, a social, moral contributor to society, that's all good. But this whole church discipline thing, yeah, that's a little much. And uh, wait, a holy God actually exists and makes demands on our lives? Yeah, I think we're going to stay over here for now. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Or maybe these people were looking at, you know, the growing tensions between the church and the Jewish authorities and they're saying, yeah, I think we're going to stay on the outside of this for now and see how things work out. Maybe when things settle down, everybody's getting along together, we'll get more involved. What are 
these people captivated by? Their comfort, their safety, themselves, the sort of things that still keep people, maybe some of you, from committing to God's church. In verse 17, we're introduced to the second group of people who were not captivated by Jesus, the high priest and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they were sort of the dominant political and religious uh, party in the Jewish leadership at that time. The Pharisees were the minority group, and together these two parties made up sort of the Sanhedrin um, the, Ro the, the Jewish Senate, the, the people that ruled over whatever the Romans would let them rule over. These Sadducees, they appear to have had their base in the priestly elites of Jewish society. And they, they were, they, 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 their kind of home base then was the, uh, the temple. Um, you can see the high priest was one of these uh, Sadducees. And so, as a result, they were not popular with the common people. Um, and again, the temple, that was sort of their home turf. And so you can imagine, right, here are these Christians. They are immensely popular with the common people, at this point at least. Uh, and they're also sort of camped out right in the temple, in the middle of the Sadducees' zone, where they're supposed to be in charge. So they're filled with jealousy, the text tells us. They want the attention. They want the power that these apostles have. And so they try to publicly humiliate the apostles. That's why they throw them in the public jail. But of course, the plan backfires. The apostles disappear from the jail and they're forced to go and ask them to come back. They're afraid of the people. And did you notice that the disciples are freed from jail by an angel? This detail would have had the whole city of Jerusalem laughing at the Sadducees because everybody knew that the Sadducees, they don't believe in angels. And so by the time that Peter explains to them in verses 29 to 32 that the apostles cannot obey them, they're enraged. Now, the literal meaning of that Greek verb is to be sawn in half. And so it's being used metaphorically to tell us what happened to their emotional state. They were sawn in half, emotionally unhinged. But it's more than jealousy. It's certainly jealousy making them angry, but it's more than that. Look at what the high priest says in verse 28. He says, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. These are the words of a guilty conscience. They thought if they could just get rid of this Jesus guy, it'd be all over. And it's not. It's not. It's worse than ever. And they can't escape the guilt. The image of Pilate washing his hands and them chanting, His blood be upon us and our children. It's burned into their memory, and these people are constantly reminding everyone. Notice, right, they don't say, you can't teach anymore. They just say, drop the whole Jesus thing, and we're good. Stop teaching in his name. There are many people in our world today 
in this position. They're not simply jealous of our unity, our fellowship, or even our ultimate obedience like the Nazis were with von Moltke. It's our message, our existence, which is a continual reminder to them that they are guilty of sin and they are ignoring it. Their guilty conscience is is gnawing at them. And whenever they see a Christian, they're reminded of it. This may explain some of the opposition you face from people who know you're a Christian. We turn finally to Gamaliel, the Pharisee. And at first glance, Gamaliel seems like the most reasonable guy in the room. Tolerant, educated, fair, Uh, Jewish history uh, considers him to have been the most revered figure of the time. Our text, verse 34, says he was held in honor by all the people. He appears neither interested in what is going on nor angry about it. He dismisses it. This Jesus figure, he's, he's just like many who've come before him. Maybe there's something there. We'll, we'll see. Let's wait. Uh, maybe you felt unsure about Gamaliel as we read this story. Uh, seems like maybe he actually wants to help these apostles. But look closely at what he says. There was Thutis who claimed to be somebody. And then Judas, he too perished. So in this present case, keep away from these men. You see what he's indicating. Their leader claimed to be somebody. He also perished. It's the same old song. There's nothing special about this crew. But is that really the case? He says about 400 men followed Thutis. Go back to the beginning of Acts. Work your way through. Do your math. There's easily 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem at this point. And here's the kicker. All of them started following Jesus after he perished. Really, Gamaliel? We're talking about the the same type of movement? Uh, Or what about that guy, lame from birth, who was jumping up and down in front of you guys a couple weeks ago? Is that typical in these situations? Or what about all the people pouring into town to be healed, demons expelled, blind seeing? Oh, oh, and did we forget about that little thing that happened this morning where all your prisoners walked through a locked door past prison guards who weren't asleep and showed up teaching in the temple? And I hate to bring it up, but it's not like you guys have been very good at keeping things locked up. I mean, remember that body of Jesus that disappeared from the tomb? You got the special Roman seal. You had the Roman soldiers put in front of it. Oh, that's right, you paid them to be quiet. Except for there's that problem where there's those more than 500 people walking around claiming to have seen this Jesus alive. Is this really all so typical, Gamaliel? He seems so reasonable, but he's really a master manipulator. He's a politician. He's not interested in the facts coming to light. He's not interested in listening to these disciples. He says, keep away from these guys and let them alone. I know, I know. He says, 
If this movement is from God, you won't be able to overthrow these apostles. And this is so clever. By adding that comment, he's made certain that no matter what happens, he will be right. If the Sadducees win, he was right. There was nothing unique about this whole Jesus movement. If the apostles win, well, hey, God must have been behind it after all. Ah, yes, the wise Gamaliel. He has maintained his position very well. He's managed to appeal both to the common people who love these apostles and to the elites. But what does he do personally with the facts, with the miracles, with the message? They're ignored. They're dismissed. They're kept as far away as possible. Gamaliel is the unbeliever that perhaps we see the most in our world today. Very rational, very tolerant, pretending to be very fair, using religious concepts and language when they're useful, ignoring anything inconvenient, dismissing anything unique, entirely inconsistent. These people are captivated by the spirit of the age. All three versions of unbelief are here in this text so vividly, not simply to show us that things haven't changed much since the first century. They're warnings for us not to be captivated in the same ways. Not daring to commit to Christ and his church. Or battling a guilty conscience that refuses to bow down to Christ and accept his forgiveness. Or dismissing the uniqueness of Christ in order to fit in with the inclusive spirit of the world. All of these people are truly missing out. They're captivated by things that can only offer a temporary reward. And they are not in search of the truth. So let's turn now and look at the apostles. What it looks like to be captivated by Christ. Uh, one commentator I read describes this passage as composed of three waves coming at the apostles. Uh, maybe you've sat at the beach sometime. You've watched a surfer. Or maybe you've surfed before. But maybe you've watched the surfer try to get out past the sort of beginning waves out to deeper water. Right? If they know what they're doing, what do they do? They dive underneath uh, the, the wave, and they pop right back up on the other side, ready to keep swimming. And so they get somewhere. If they don't want, know what they're doing, they get demolished, and the surfboard goes flying. Maybe you've seen that too. So the first wave to hit the apostles is landing in the public jail. The second wave is when they're rearrested, they're interrogated. The third wave is when they get beaten. But each time, they pop right up on the other side of the wave, and what do they do? They start telling people about Jesus. Even the Sanhedrin gets told about Jesus, exactly who they didn't want to hear about. And notice by the end of this text, verse 40, it's not like these waves are slowing them down. It's actually like the whole process has, has only made them more comprehensive in their teaching. They're not just teaching in the temple. They're also teaching house to house. They're not just teaching, they're preaching too. 
and they do not cease doing it, the text says. Who gets whacked in the face again and again by waves and gets more zealous about their topic? If you're just interested in Jesus or you're just talking about Jesus because your pastor told you to, you're not going to keep talking about him unless you get rewarded for it. If people think you're cool for talking about him or if the Lord gives you great success or maybe if we have like a nice pep rally we'll get you revved up enough to talk about Jesus but to get more zealous in the face of opposition the only people who can do that are those who are captivated by Jesus. They don't need a reward. Jesus is their reward. The reward, that's just the action of talking about him. It's not how people respond. And let's just remind ourselves how important it is to talk about Jesus. Is the way you live your life important? Yes. Is it enough? No. Uh, maybe you've heard the phrase, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That is ridiculous. Liam Gallagher compares this to turning on the news and the news anchor is just standing there smiling at the camera. It doesn't matter if they look really kind, uh, if they pat the other news reporter on the back and offer to let them go first. Even if they show some footage, you know, or some big waves or something, you still need someone to tell you where it is, what's happening, why it matters, what it means. If you don't take it upon yourself to tell those around you about Jesus and interpret him to them, all they're going to get is whatever the culture or their Facebook feed or their teacher says about Christianity. You don't want that. You want someone who's captivated by Jesus, who actually loves him, to explain him to people. We need to speak the fuel for speaking is being captivated by the one that we're trying to talk about. Now, a second thing we see about those who are captivated by Christ is that they obey God rather than men. Uh, verse 29. What a clear, succinct description of a Christian's priorities. Uh, every decision you make needs to start here. There are many potentially difficult decisions that can be easily determined by committing yourself to this simple concept. I must obey God rather than men. My personal preferences, the wishes of the people that I love, the pressure of my boss at work, the rules of the government, the cultural trends and stereotypes of this world, all these things must bow to God's commands. If the Lord says something clear about an issue, those who are captivated by him can know what to do. There is freedom here, brothers and sisters. Children, when other kids are unkind to someone different. God is clear. You are to be kind. 
Young adults, when your boyfriend pressures you to have sex before marriage, or when you consider marrying an unbeliever, God is clear. Don't do it. In your jobs, when your boss asks you to do something wrong or your coworkers gossip about someone in the office, God is clear. You must obey God rather than men. It may be painful, but you will not regret it. Start there with every decision that comes your way. You will not be alone if you pursue obedience. The Holy Spirit will be there witnessing with you, giving you joy and courage like Peter and the apostles. Finally and thirdly, we see that being captivated by Christ means rejoicing in your persecution. If you were to go through this Story, and you were to circle all the emotional words that you see here, you would find the Jewish leaders and their soldiers progress throughout the text from jealousy to being perplexed to being afraid to being enraged. The apostles are described only once in verse 41 as rejoicing. And we all want to know the secret of joy, don't we? We look at those little kids playing and laughing together after church. And sometimes we feel a little sad or jealous that we don't feel that simple joy anymore. Well, what did the apostles teach us? These guys rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And this is such a crucial part of this whole text, okay? Because their suffering exposes why they do everything that they do here. They're not obeying God just because they're really obedient people or their parents trained them particularly well. They're not teaching about Jesus just because the angel told them to teach about Jesus. They do these things because they want to be linked to and identified by the name of Jesus. They're captivated by him. I think you can see this powerfully when you back up from this story for a second. You just ask the question, what is God doing here? Start with their deliverance from jail. If God is going to have them speak to these Jewish leaders anyway, why does he deliver them from the prison for a couple of hours to go speak in the temple? I mean, what was the point of it all? Surely it wasn't just so they could change into nicer clothes or get a few hours of sleep back home. At its core, this is a public statement of God's supremacy. This is God saying to the entire city of Jerusalem and to us, I determine the steps my people take, not you Jewish leaders, not you nations and you governments and you power brokers of the world, me. If I want to walk my people out of jail untouched without anybody knowing, I'll do it. This is a statement of sovereignty. But now here's the harder question. Having shown his power in that way, why does God let the apostles suffer the second time they're arrested? All Jerusalem has to confront this question. What do you think people are talking about that night with their families 
or at their jobs. There's this obviously miraculous deliverance. God makes it look so easy to protect his people. All the, he's got everybody laughing at these Sadducees. But then, hours later, he lets his people bleed. You wonder what the apostles were thinking as the flesh is ripped off their backs. I wonder where that angel is that God sent this morning. He would be really handy right now. Ow! Why does God let them suffer? Like Job, we might not know some of the reasons, but here's at least one reason. So that everyone, including the angel who's probably standing right next to them, can see their love for Jesus. That's how they interpret this. They aren't questioning God's decision. They rejoice because they say, we have been considered worthy to show the universe that Jesus is worth bleeding for. Jesus is worth dying for. And they did die for Christ. We could walk through what church history says. Peter died, crucified upside down. James was beheaded. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. The other James, thrown off a cliff, beat to death. Thomas was run through with a spear. Thaddeus Executed by arrows, Matthew was killed by the sword, Nathaniel was beaten to death, on and on, all of them remembering that day as they died, when the angel walked them right out of jail and knowing, this is how God chose for me to die. But rejoicing that they were considered worthy by God to die for Jesus. They're captivated by Jesus. It's crazy. It's insane behavior. And it is freedom. It's the secret to joy. And you can have it. Whether you haven't dared commit to Jesus, or you are angry about how he keeps reminding you of your guilty conscience, or you have dismissed him as nothing too special, being captivated by Christ. That's a journey. It's built on stories of grace given and received throughout your life. But Peter tells the Sanhedrin where it begins. And he gives them the chance to embrace Christ as well. And he tells you, the God who worked through Israel to bring salvation to all nations, raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by sinning against God so that he needed to be hung on a tree. God has exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give you repentance and forgiveness of sins. And you are to be witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God gives to those who obey him. 